In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Saul is now king over Israel. His reign begins quite auspiciously when he must lead the army in battle against the Ammonite tyrant Nahash. In exchange for peace, Nahash demands that all the Israelites have their right eyes gouged out. Upon hearing this, Yahweh empowers King Saul to defeat the Ammonite threat. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Thursday, May 11th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. Visit them online to learn more about their translating and publishing work and how to get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, folks, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us explore 1 Samuel chapter 11. It's the Reverend Jason Bredesen, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Sacramento, California. Pastor Bredesen, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Pastor Boo. It's great to be with all of you again. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you don't mind me mentioning, but off the air, you had told me that you are currently on duty as an Air Force chaplain. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, Just after Easter, I came out here to Ogden, Utah, where I am serving as the individual mobilization augmentee to the wing chaplain at Hill Air Force Base. Wow, that's a mouthful for sure. (laughs) But I wanted to recognize that because we certainly appreciate uh, the work that chaplains do with our armed forces and also our peace officer chaplains and everybody else. But uh, yeah, so that's wonderful. Well, hopefully we'll be able to get through the program without you having to rush off to a call. But I'm so grateful that you're taking some time out to uh, be with us today to study God's Word. I tell you what, why don't we go ahead and begin. But as always, we're going to start with prayer, and I invite you to lead us in that prayer. Thank you. Let us pray. <clears throat> Holy Father, in this blessed Eastertide, we rejoice in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we here in the Church Militant continue to engage in the warfare to which you have called us, um, that to do battle against um, the powers of this present darkness, we pray your mercy would always be upon us, even as you have promised through Christ our Lord. As we dig into your holy word today, we, um, we thank you for teaching us uh, and pointing us always to the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, in which is our only salvation, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, brother. Well, you know, today's text follows immediately well, Saul becoming king. This is the, the first king of Israel. It's not the one that they, well, should be wanting, but it's the one they deserve. Let's just put it that way. They've rejected a God as their king. Part of it is also that God promised them a king, but they are impatient for his timing, and thus, in that way, they've rejected God. Um, before we dig into the text, though, maybe it'd be a good idea to just lay the groundwork on what's happened with Saul becoming king, and then it gives us a little insight into what happens next in our text today. Yeah, so obviously the people have um, sought a king, and uh, as you mentioned, they did so unduly and thus rejected their Lord and 
God uh, in so doing. Saul is given the task. He is, um, in chapter 10, uh, anointed as king. He's chosen and anointed. And now in chapter 11, he faces his first real significant test as king. Uh, We'll discuss, I'm sure, moving forward. But uh, at the end of chapter 11, we find that Saul already begins to show his colors by not being faithful in what God had already asked him to do in chapter 10. Uh, He doesn't fulfill the commands of the sacrifices found in chapter 10, verse 8. And he also ignores the issue of the Philistine garrison at Gibeath Elohim that he is commanded to address in 10, 5, and 7. So he's already showing his, um, his colors, as it were, right away at the outset of his reign. But he does show himself as a worthy leader in battle as he faces the Ammonites. Well, we're going to start reading, but I'm going to actually start with the end of chapter 10, because something said there comes up later in chapter 11. But I'm going to begin with uh, just one sentence before verse 25 of chapter 10. Here we go. The people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before Yahweh. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts touched God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Now we're getting into chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we'll serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept. Okay, well, starting with 11, you know, what an interesting situation. Um, we have here Nahash, and he's he's going to uh, attack this city. He's actually, he is attacking it. Um, and they seem to be willing to serve him so long as, you know, he makes some agreement, but he makes this impossible agreement. Take us through this, brother. It's a strange it's a strange text, even though it is Saul's first kind of shining moment. Yeah, it really is kind of a strange text, isn't it? Um, you know, as I reflected upon this, uh, seeing Nahash, um, who was a warlord in the Transjordan on the eastern side of the Jordan, uh, he sought to do battle with Jabesh-Gilead. And the, the issue there is that it may have been a, a dispute over the territory and who it belonged to. I know that's shocking that anyone would go to battle over something like that. Um, But yeah, Saul had just been anointed king. And so think about when we get a new president. Think about when, um, when President Trump was elected. All of a sudden, North Korea started their saber rattling. When President Biden was elected, we saw uh, Russia roll into Ukraine. And anytime there is a new leader, there is 
typically some sort of international saber rattling to kind of test the mettle of the new leader. And I think that's a lot of what's going on here. Nahash, the Ammonite, perhaps saw an opportunity where he could gain some um, some land, and he makes that attempt. He uh, goes after Jabesh Gilead. What an interesting comparison, you know. I mean, there is some text uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if you found that in your research. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a little bit of additional information that's placed in 1 Samuel right before this section. And it, it actually supports your theory. And it's that, you know, this Nahash king had... had all, this isn't his first attack, right? So it's, it's after Paul, Saul has become king, but he, he moves in, he does the saber-rattling... But he's been doing it in other places. And if, if we're to take this earlier text as authentic, then, then the only detail that it the only, the only detail that it adds is that uh, he had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites, and he would gouge out the right eye of each of them. So uh, he, he apparently had done this already, and there were other people whose whose eyes had been gouged out. And so it makes sense then that they then, according to this uh, Dead Sea Scrolls text, 7,000 of them flee to this town, and that's why he's there. Now, that doesn't undermine your point at all, which is that now there's a change in leadership, and we're going to test to see how weak or strong this new leader, this new king, this new president, this new whatever is. Um, and uh, I guess we're going to see how, just how strong he is. But, but from Nahash's point of view, um, it's just a, it's just a brutal request. Uh, why do you think? What do you think the tactical advantage of a king to have subjected under him a bunch of one-eyed people? Yeah, it really is. Um, well, it, it if it were to happen today, it would be a war crime and uh, would be <laughs> right. um, illegal according to the Geneva Convention. So it's just definitely not a friendly move, to say the least. Josephus, the um, Jewish historian of um, right around the time of Christ, uh, informs that what what this would do, gouging out the right eye, would it make men incapable of, incapable of taking up their arms. Right-handed men would hold their shield in their left hand, and that would thus cover their only good eye, their left eye, so you can't see. Uh, it would also have the effect of uh, messing with the depth perception. So as the enemy is um, advancing upon you, you wouldn't be able to gauge their speed or distance and that sort of thing. And then also, I mean, if, you were, if you're walking around with one eye, people know that you lost to right. Nahash. And that is going to create no shortage of um, frustration, national frustration. Well, and it's a dis that's why I guess he describes it as a disgrace because yeah. among some of the practical aspects of it, yeah, you're right. It's just like look at all the, they're wearing a symbol of their defeat, uh, and especially if they received it as is suggested here willingly, it's like they're saying, yeah. he's like, if you want peace from me, then you have to essentially disarm yourselves. Uh, and I think I yeah. think that that certainly has some interesting uh, modern day commentary. I'm sure. 
<laughs> uh, not from me, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we do have here, though, is that if they were to engage in this eye gouging, they would be able to still farm agriculture, things like that. So they'd still be a benefit to him because they would, well, they would be able to give him tribute because of they're still able to do some work with one eye, but just fighting is something they wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, it would uh, definitely take the fight out of them. Now, then it's interesting, though, that they, they seem to say, um, give us seven days. And, and as you first read this, I think that we're tempted to think that the reason why they're wanting seven days is so that they can consider it. It's like, okay, give us seven days to think about it. But that's not what happens. They actually say, give us seven days so that we can send messengers out to see if anybody will come help us beat you. And then if nobody will come help us uh, conquer you or, or refute or, re, uh, or keep you away from us, it, no one's there to save us, okay, then we'll give ourselves up to you. Uh, that, what, what a strange... I think if I were the attacking, opposing force, if I were, if I were Nahash here, I would just say, so wait a minute, get this straight. You're, you're kind of willing to go with my crazy plan but you want to just make sure that there's no one that's strong enough to beat me first? I'm not going to let you do that, it, but it, I guess he does. Yeah. It definitely shows some strategic blunders on Nahash's part uh, here and later in the passage when assuming that he's not out seeking um, military intelligence because he's got a 330,000-man army you know, spinning up on the other side of the Jordan River, just uh, uh, just shy of 20 miles from him, and uh, he, he isn't even aware of it. Uh, Nahash uh, presumably is would be a better leader uh, as a warrior, and, and I, I'm having a hard time seeing it here. Yeah. He lets him go and seek those who would defend him, uh, defend themselves, uh, uh, and then uh, later on, he he lets them roll right in, roll roll right into the camp and not uh, not have any intelligence on the matter. Yeah, I think there might be a couple different ways to try to reconcile this. None of which are supported specifically in scripture. But I suppose on the one hand, he could be thinking he could be so confident, overconfident that he'll be able to defeat any. Israelite coalition that they come up with. No matter who shows up, I'll be able to take them. Or maybe even to push it further, if a lot of people show up to try to battle, that's just how much greater my spoils will be. I'll just have that much more when I conquer them. I suspect there's some arrogance going on on Nahash's point of view. Yeah, I think you're probably right there, and, and that rarely helps in battle. <laughs> Sure. Well, that's just the first four verses. Let's get some more verses under our belts. Uh, I'm going to uh, read starting with verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and he cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of Yahweh fell on upon the people, and they came out as one man. 
Let's pause just right there at the end of verse 7. Saul's coming in from behind, from the field behind the oxen. Um, you know, it's a small point, but is is Saul out there working the land as king, or, or is that something else? Why, I wonder what that means. Well, in my study, uh, what I found was that he's kind of in that transitional point between going from his previous vocation and then picking up the kingship. And um, so there's there's this kind of middle ground, maybe, you know, after the election, but before the um, <laughs> the uh, uh, coronation kind of thing. Um, just that that brief in between time, the peaceful transfer of power is going sure. on. And so he's finishing up his previous vocation and preparing to enter into the kingship. He's like, well, I got to finish, you know, out here in the field, but I guess I'll have to wait. Go wage a battle with uh, the armies of the entire kingdom of which I'm responsible. I just it it kind of it kind of reminds me of, say, the uh, the Senate president who also it works as a pastor. You know, there there might be something. And I think of one of the I forgot which prime minister it is, one of these little European countries, but. He's riding around town on his bike and stuff, you know, and, <laughs> and it's not just sort of a political ploy. It's just he doesn't have a lot to, to do. So yeah. I just I think maybe if um, Saul would have spent a couple days still in the field, he might have connected with his people better. But I don't know. I just I just found that it just sort of stood out to me. But mm -hmm. he does. He sees the people are lamenting and mm -hmm. he asks about them. And then we have the curious phrase, which we have heard before, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. The last time I heard that anyway was with Samson and Judges. Isn't it, uh, isn't it interesting? You see the Spirit of God coming upon him, and it induces in Saul a righteous anger, um, that presumably out of the a, a, a good national pride as God's chosen people. Um, and uh, as his anger is kindled, he institutes a very convincing draft, national draft. Yes, he does. <laughs> if you don't come and fight for me, I will take away your livelihood. <laughs> and a very graphic one, too, you know. He, these poor oxen, right? They're, they're being brought out of the field, and he gets mad because it's the Lord's will that he have this righteous indignation. And I think of Samson, who, whenever his powers were exercised, well, I shouldn't say whenever, because sometimes we didn't have this, but occasionally it would be preceded by the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And so that's what we're seeing here, the Spirit of God rushing upon him and producing in him this righteous anger. Isn't it interesting? Um, you, you don't often think about the Spirit of God coming upon someone in the the natural response being anger. Uh, I think it's instructive, though, that um, that Paul in Ephesians says, you know, don't be angry, uh, and in your anger do not sin. Um, I find that to be helpful and instructive uh, when we see the injustices of the world uh, that rightly anger us, even if we mishandle our anger all too often, um, there are things that simply are not right in the world that ought to upset us. I wholeheartedly agree with that, for sure. 
and then and then you know they also require a response even from godly people uh, you know it's people have often mistook the gospel for being nice or rather being nice for the gospel that is that the the goal of the christian is just to be nice to everybody now we certainly want to be gentle and we certainly don't want to be mean or be jerks for no reason but there's there is a i guess there is a role for for being in in you know, righteously indignant at injustices or at uh, a flagrant contempt for God's will and word. And those types of things, because we're human, God uses all types of emotions to spur action within us. And in this case, it spurs King Saul to do something about it. He cuts up all of his oxen and sends them throughout all the territory. That reminds me a little bit of the horrific scene when the Levite, uh, after the Benjaminites had killed and and uh, by abusing his concubine he cuts her up he sends her throughout israel and it musters everyone to battle and they nearly wipe out the benjamites well here we have saul uh, thankfully it's not a person but he's sending pretty much the same message you know mm. this is what's going to happen to you if you don't come after and follow saul and samuel interesting he adds samuel because while saul's the king Samuel is, uh, well, I guess God among the people. He's the spokesperson for God. He is, yeah. He's the prophet. He's the judge. Uh, he is the one that is facilitating on God's behalf uh, at the undue request of the people to, to institute the kingdom. And um, Saul, I think, is right at this early part of his reign to include Samuel's leadership in this forthcoming battle. Anything else about this text uh, before we move on? Yeah, just that, that it would be a very convincing draft. Uh, it would be motivational, shall we say. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, then we have the next part. So then, uh, beginning back with verse 7, So then the dread of Yahweh fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow... We will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Well, we are going to learn a little bit more about what that's all about, but first we're going to take a break. Folks, don't go anywhere when we come back. Pastor Bredesen and I will keep on going through 1 Samuel chapter 11. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. 
but they need our help because Good Lutheran Books for Kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Jason Bredesen, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Sacramento, California. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I pray that God blesses you through our study. If you know someone who might like the show, be sure to share it with them. Let them know that they can tune in over the air in St. Louis on AM850 or listen live or on demand at kfuo.org. Or they can hear the program as a podcast on KFUO's own mobile app or on their favorite podcasting platform. There's so many ways to keep connected. Also, I'm available to answer any question you have or hear your feedback. You can reach me at my email address, pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search my name, Phil Boo. You can drop by and say hello. Just thank you. That's what I have to say to you for being loyal listeners. And now, back to the Bible. All right, so Pastor Bredesen, before the break, we read uh, verses uh, basically 8 through 11. And you know what? Let's just reread those again so that we can discuss them. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. So they're coming to their rescue. Yahweh is motivating Saul to, to uh, be the king that he really should be. Uh, and they send the messengers saying, we're coming to help you. I, I think it's a couple things that stand out to me, one of which is the timeline. I, we hear this all the time by, by prophets, uh, I believe some of the apostles too. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, or if you know that I'm wrong. But it's like, it's, it's this I don't want to say overconfident because it does come to pass, but it's this just confident projection of of God's salvation according to a, a timeline. I mean, he he doesn't just say we're coming to help you. He's just saying by the time it gets hot out, by the middle of the day, we're going to have taken care of this. I, I mean, there's confidence, but then there's also, I don't know, maybe putting the Lord to the test. Does that stand out to you at all, too? Well, yeah, I think— it's it's a beautiful picture of trust in the promises of Yahweh. You know, Saul had been promised by Yahweh that he would be with him. Um, we see this throughout various battles in the Old Testament, and um, I, I think it I think it's a beautiful picture of the promise that Yahweh would be with them. We don't see it um, as clearly here in. Um, this passage, as we do elsewhere, as with Moses uh, fleeing in the Exodus, but um, 
but I think it's definitely here. I mean, it's 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 Israel is God's people, and they uh, they have the confidence that Yahweh will be with them. Well, and he is with them, which we see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a little strategy here. I think it's easily mix, missed. I'm glad I read it twice because, you know, when they get the word that, hey, by, by the time it gets hot, we're going to have saved you, um, the men of Jabesh say to, I presume, Nahash, hey, okay, we're ready to give ourselves up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't say this, but it's like, meet us on the field around noon, you know. Right. I mean, yeah. it, it, they suggest that they're going to surrender and and I suppose, I, I don't know. It seems like the oldest trick in the book, but then this is a pretty old book, so maybe maybe this was before anybody was wise to the whole fake surrender thing. Um, I don't know. You again, Nahash is this is not his first uh, rodeo. You would right. presume he's he's had other battles, and I, I, I don't know. I I can't imagine Nahash being in a position like he did at the outset where he would let them go and muster an army, whatever he could to come back and fight. And then them coming and saying, well, you know, I think uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and just yield ourselves to you and you can do whatever you want with us. We might as well just hand you our right eye when he isn't um, doing the, the much needed necessary strategic work of, finding out if there's more to the story. Bezek was 17 miles from Jabesh Gilead, so it would it would be an easy target to strike from there and and uh, he he has presumably has no clue that Israel is gathering this army. I I I'm, I find it baffling he didn't have scouts out and about looking yeah. at uh, looking at the situation. Well, and let's talk a little bit about the size of this army, right? So, it's not number, small. <laughs> yeah, the number that we get in our English Standard Version uh, in the Hebrew is 330,000. Um, interestingly enough, the Septuagint, that's the Greek version of the Old Testament, folks at home, um, it says 670,000. Uh, but the Hebrew is 330. I think that's probably more accurate. There are some people who are critical of the scriptures that would say, well, there's no way they had 330,000 people because, or um, uh, soldiers because they just weren't that big of a nation yet. But that you can contrast to the census that, the, that Moses had taken 400 years earlier, and 330,000 is about half of what he counted. So regardless of what's going on here, this is a considerable force. I, I mean, I tend to believe that the Hebrew, the 330,000, um, but we don't really get any indication of what the force was of Nahash, at least not in this particular incident. And so it makes me wonder, you know, maybe there's another overconfidence. Maybe he, maybe it wasn't so much that he didn't know that they weren't gathering this army, but just rather he, he just overestimated his ability to, to fight and kill over them. After all, this is just a bunch of loosely confederated tribes who just barely, I mean, their king hasn't even built a palace yet. I mean, you know, he just probably thought this is a bunch of backwards folks that I'm going to be able to easily conquer. And typically when we see numbers in the scriptures, it's to help us see that they couldn't have done it on their own without God's help. Yet 330,000 is still pretty large. So I don't know. I don't know how to take it. How, what, how do you see it? 
That could be very well the case that he was uh, arrogant in his own abilities and in the training of his army. I I still would find it um, a bit remiss that he would not recognize that they may be attempting a surprise attack prior to the appointed time when Jabesh Gilead would yield themselves with their right eyes. But yeah, it, it 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 it's a confusing passage, certainly from from the aspect of Nahash's positioning. Well, and regardless, we know that no matter what all the details were in the background, Yahweh is the victor. I mean, we talk we can talk about the size of the army, we can talk about the the righteous indignation of Saul, we can talk about all those things, but as is often the point, God is the one who's with them. So. You know, Nahash could have come, he could have known about all of this, he could have come with a battalion of, or many battalions of millions of soldiers, and he still would have lost because God was with his people, and I think that's also important for us to remember. Absolutely, yeah. Well, there's a—go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, there's a little bit more left in the chapter. Anything else to mine from this or any of the other texts before we move on? Uh, It's intriguing that Judah— is singled out the 300,000 army from Israel plus 30,000 from Judah. Um, in my looking at that, it, it seemed to indicate that this was one of the ways that may have looked ahead to the future divided kingdom uh, or to perhaps highlight the Judean perspective of um, the author of Samuel here and perhaps the audience that he was trying to reach. I, I don't know if you were able to look at that at all, but do you have any? Uh... Well, you know, not a lot, only that typically, and we saw this in Judges, Judah tends to bring the most to the table. They tend to bring uh, the, the largest battalions. They, they bring the largest, um, you know, offerings. They, they, they're, they're just, they're a larger clan. And so I think if we have 300,000 and we divide that among the other 11, and again, they're not all equal. Benjaminites are probably still having trouble shoring up very many numbers. You're you're like twenty seven thousand two hundred seventy two and seventy two repeating for for each uh, nation. Now you then divide that around. You look like well, you know, it just it's not a giant number over the rest. So I think you're absolutely correct in that they're emphasizing that it's definitely a foreshadowing of the division, but. At the same time, I think it really just focuses on um, the fact that they're all there and and Judah is leading, but probably not with the numbers we would expect. And is that significant? I don't know. I, I suspect we might be a few thousand years away from the text to really understand the full significance <laughs> of that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, it stands out to me too, though. Yeah. Good. Well, let's go in. Let's read um, the next section. The next section is called The Kingdom is Renewed by the Editors of the ESV. Um, Interesting. Let's see what they mean by that. Verses 12 through 15. The people said to Samuel, Who is that that said, Saul shall reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. 
So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before Yahweh in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before Yahweh. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So I said, I read verse 27 of the previous chapter, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held to his peace. Nice guy, at least right now. <laughs> and then in verse 12, it comes back again, right? Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? You have to read kind of sarcastically. He's saying, bring those men so that we can put them to death. The people are so enamored with Saul's victory, they're, they're screaming, you know, he's our, that's my king, right? Hashtag is my king. Uh, he's, he's saying, they're saying, you know, whoever doesn't like this guy, we're going to actually, we're going to kill him. And, and then Saul is very magnanimous. He says, no, we're not going to kill him. We're just going to focus the fact that Yahweh has won the day, which is true. But even here, though, people are people are ready to kill for their king, and it, and he hasn't even been coronated yet. At least according to uh, this section, they're going to renew it. Yeah, uh, uh, that just goes to speak. If if a leader has the trust of his people, they will do whatever needs to be done to ensure that that he takes care of them uh, and that they take care of him. So I, I think, you know, in the, uh, in the aftermath of winning the battle, they want to do right and do justice by their king, even if their actions would be unjust. And, um, and they, they found a leader that they're confident in, and they're, they're behind him all the way. Yeah, they are, they're renewing their commitment to serve King Saul, which they'd already done, which is why it's called, I guess, a renewal. Um, Saul's pretty diplomatic, though, in that he diffuses the situation. You know, he's like, oh, these people who are against me, let's spare them. Let's focus on God and his glory. Um, well, that's is that about the only time he actually yeah. is diplomatic? Because in the future, Saul deals exactly that way with people who might not support him wholeheartedly. Uh, not only is he diplomatic with... Um with his people, uh, which is untrue to his character moving forward, but he's also reflecting rightly that it was Yahweh that won the battle, not the armies. And we see that in the future, and in fact, uh, just now in, in the end of this chapter, we see the ways in which he begins to show his true colors and not be faithful to Yahweh uh, as Yahweh has commanded him. But but even, but even at this outset, not only is he seeking to take care of his people, but he's also seeking to give glory to Yahweh for the winning of the battle. Which is certainly a good thing. You know, it, it takes us back a little bit to verse 9 when I talked about, well, you know, well, the scriptures say, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot you shall have salvation. And, and you said, you know, this is a display of great faith and trust in God, which is which is wonderful. This is a message from their king. It's just what you want to hear. Um, it's faith and fortitude that really characterizes David more than Saul. And here we have, well, a similar thing. It's it's something you expect a David to say, not Saul. I, you know, I'm just I'm just speculating here, but it makes me wonder if the people are getting this idea that Saul is going to be a great king 
and they're ready to kill for him. They're standing behind him. They're going to renew their devotion to him. And yet God has clearly told them that this king is going to do all these evil things to them. And he's going to, you know, even when it came time for Saul to become king, he was hiding. <laughs> he was hiding. And so he didn't want to come out and, and receive this uh, honor, question mark, because because it's been very clear from God himself that this this kingdom is going to be a bad thing for you guys. And yet the people see just what they can, they see in the present time. They, they Obviously they can't see in the future, but they have a hard time trusting in God and considering it. So now I think we even have people who might have been rightfully suspicious of Saul, perhaps considering what God had said, and now everybody's on board. And I just, I wonder if it illustrates the, again, in a, in a similar way that Judges does, the depravity of the people. Like they've completely abandoned God's word because he's told them that this isn't good. And not only do they believe it's good, but now they're looking at Saul as this great savior uh, in this battle and maybe even beyond. I don't know. Pastor Boo, are you saying that God's people sometimes have a hard time believing God? Oh, no, certainly not. No, of course, right? This is the this is the theme time and again and again and again. Yeah, but I think that's part of it. Yeah, I yeah, think that I wasn't mean, exactly a long branch to go out on, but I, yeah. I definitely think it's illustrated here. Here we are in Easter, in the season of Easter, and we look at the... Um, the disciples all running away in fear uh, at the crucifixion, at the trial and crucifixion, when Jesus has clearly proclaimed, I, I'm going to go and die, and, and on the third day I'm going to rise, and here, here we are questioning him. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, then they show up with a bunch of spices and be like, where is yeah. he? Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's instructive to us. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, you know, and and there is a lot to be said about leadership and Saul, and I know a lot of ink has been spilt on probably all of this, but I think it's worth, I think it's also worth considering that God's word is certainly comes true. God is, is faithful to his word, but he also, it's not as though he's hardened Saul's heart to be an evil guy or to be a terrible king. And I almost wonder if this also gives us a little glimmer of hope, especially as a reader that says, you know, maybe Saul's going to turn it around. Maybe he is going to defy expectations, repent of his character, and and God's going to be with him. I mean, we know he doesn't, but I'm just saying, if this is our first time encountering the book of 1 Samuel, you know, we might be tempted to say, wait a minute, what was God talking about way back when they were demanding a king and, and how it was going to be bad? Sounds like it's going good so far. He definitely yeah. appears to check all the boxes, doesn't he? A good, good leader of uh, his people. Good, good. Uh, he's standing up for the, the national pride, if you will, in a in a positive light, mm -hmm. and he is attributing the victory to Yahweh. So he he checks all the boxes, but I th his true colors come forward pretty quickly. Yeah, and I think that's a good reminder for us too that. Sometimes, yes. or not sometimes, oh, I got in trouble. I should say all the time, God's word is going to be more reliable than even what we see with our eyes and experience. And here mm -hmm. he's doing all the right things. And we might be tempted to say, if we were there on the ground, well, we're going to kill for this guy because he's such a great guy. I don't, I don't know what God was talking about. Or we can say, you know what? 
this guy has done really well, but still God's word will come true. And, and then we would have been more cautious going forward. Well, anything else about any of this text before we wrap up today? This is a, it's a short text, but it, it certainly, I think it, it kicks off Saul's reign as king on a pretty auspicious, a, a pretty good high note. But, of course, the, the higher they are, the, the, the faster and harder they fall, and we're going to see that. Uh, anything about this you want to make sure that people know about before we wrap up today? Well, as you say, it, it appears to be a good start, but right here at the end, um, where he begins to discuss the, the sacrifice of the peace offerings, and yet in chapter 10, verse 8, it was, um, there was supposed to be more um, offerings that were given. So even right away here, Saul is um, treading on, on holy ground, where he is um, disobeying the Lord. And in 5 through 7 of chapter 10, he had been uh, commanded by Yahweh to deal with the Philistine garrison at Gibeath Elohim, and he doesn't. Uh, and he receives his coronation, uh, which should not have happened until that had been dealt with. So we see him already stepping on God's toes. Wow, how insightful, because I was already too enamored with his battle battle victory to notice that detail. Uh, as you point out in chapter 10, verse 8, uh, it says, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. And as you so rightly point out, it just says nonchalantly, and there they sacrifice peace offerings before the Lord. He, he, yeah, I, I do think it's a symptom of of him thinking, well, that's going to be enough. You know, the, mm -hmm. the Lord doesn't need what what we put out for to begin with. This is going to be enough. Peace offerings will be fine. You know, yeah, mm -hmm. I I think that's a really important point. It does. It is yeah. a little glimmer of what's to happen. He's wanting to to bask in the victory of uh, the military victory against uh, the Ammonites, but he won't deal with the Philistines, which had been mm -hmm. commanded him as well. Well, that sort of brings our least section today to a close. I'd like to thank my guest to this morning, the Reverend Jason Bredesen. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Sacramento, California. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy it. I appreciate it, Pastor Boo, and God's blessings to all of the saints out there. Thank you so much. Tomorrow, folks, we're going to turn the page to chapter 12. Samuel reminds the Israelites of God's faithfulness, and he warns them against rejecting God as their leader. That's a common theme. And he acknowledges Saul as their anointed king and encourages them to fear and serve the Lord and also to serve the king. Samuel calls on God to send a sign of his power, and the people confess their sin. And then Samuel reassures them that if they serve God faithfully, they will be blessed but warns them of the consequences of disobedience. So there's a lot in this chapter. We're going to take it all apart, and that's going to be starting tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong name.